some respects, and I think a fast is appropriate for that. This sermon will be entitled, Anatoth, colon, How It All Ends, or Anatoth, colon, How It All Ends, to better emphasize it. Uh, you know, whatever situation we might be in in life or have been in, it doesn't matter really so much how it started or where it is at whatever juncture you're dealing with it, but what really amounts, amounts to something is when, how it all ends. It's just like our life on this earth in terms of the spiritual. It doesn't matter where we start uh, when God calls us. It doesn't matter where we are sometime along the path. But where we are at the end is what's really, really important. Will we be in the kingdom of God or will we not? So I, I chose to use the How It All Ends as the title for this. Now, we'll need to lay some background and, and have some understanding before we address the end of it, because it all comes together and makes sense when you understand it in the proper perspective. Now, I'll remind that in 2005, I was giving a sermon a series on Jeremiah. And when we got to 11, chapter 11 of Jeremiah, uh, the Scripture states, and I stated, and probably knowing me pretty emphatically, that someday there would be a rebellion in Anatoth, because the Scripture said so. And today we are in the throes of a rebellion at Anatoth. Now, I'm not laying blame on anybody at this point. I'm just saying that there is a situation where uh, there's division and frustration. Now, let's address one issue first, which is probably paramount in some minds, and that is most people feel that this division has occurred because of me, personally. Now, let's assume for the moment that that is the case, and perhaps to some degree it is. I won't, can't say it's not. Uh, I, by... No means have ever been a perfect individual. I have always had difficulties and trials and faults and problems. And it all really boils down to two main issues that I personally have had to deal with in my life. And I mean this seriously, not sarcastically. I've had two issues that I've had serious trouble with. The first is putting God above all things, including myself. And secondly, loving my neighbor as much as myself. Those are two major issues that I have struggled with all my life. They're the two most important things. Now, those two things manifest themselves in many, many different directions. Not loving God enough and not loving neighbor enough can come out in many, many ways. And they have with all of us. So, uh, those two issues that I've struggled with really are the two issues that every one of us has. They may take different forms with different people, but every one of them boils down to that. And that's what Christ said. Those are the two major commandments. That everything else hangs on those two. Now, I'm not trying to gild the lily here. Uh, I, I have struggled with those two. I'll tell you that. 
And there have been times here when I have said things that are inappropriate. I've maybe done things that have been inappropriate. There have been quite a few times that I've had to go to people and say, you know, what I said or what I did yesterday uh, was not right, and I want to apologize. I've done that quite a few times. And probably many other times that I could have and should have, and maybe didn't. That would be a, another problem. Uh, it's been suggested by quite a few, and it's something I've been aware of all along. My wife and I have talked about it many times, that uh, I should have been around visiting and communicating with all the people in their homes more since we've been here. And I've thought about that and kind of worked on it and never got organized enough to do as much of it as I really should have. And that might have helped solve a lot of the misunderstandings and the communication problems and difficulties that we have today. So I will take responsibility for, at least in part, uh, being the problem. Uh, on the other hand, well, many of the things that have been told and suggested and dreamed up and fantasized and scenarioed to me simply are untrue. I'm not going to sit here though, and uh, try to justify or defend myself, not going to do it at all. Uh, God does not create, did not create a confession booth, and I do not need to c confess all my sins to anybody, neither do you. Uh, we don't have a confession booth for priests or for members. Uh, we confess our sins before God and forsake them, is what we're supposed to do. And we are each responsible for ourself. So... Uh, I apologize for any of you that I may have hurt over the years or in whatever way. Matthew 18 has come up a lot in the last six or eight, ten months, whatever, in saying that I won't comply with Matthew 18. Well, I have sat down with people who had complaints about me, and uh, some were true and some were untrue. doesn't matter at this point. But... No one has come up with two witnesses of sins that I have committed. They've not even come up in these cases with one witness of the things I've been accused of. So that ends the Matthew 18 process right there. It's not that I've refused to go there. If somebody comes up with two or three witnesses of something that I have done that is a sin against them, uh, then we'll pursue Matthew 18, but no one has to date because they don't have any witnesses of the things that I've been accused of. It doesn't matter whether their accusations are right or wrong, uh, or whether I sinned or didn't sin, and it does say sinned against you, so it needs to be something I did against them. But bringing your buddies who will agree with you is not a witness. A witness is somebody that saw the sin. Okay? So Matthew 18 stops right there with you, with me, with anybody else. So it isn't valid uh, in this particular case. But that doesn't mean that I haven't done things wrong, said things wrong, and I apologize for it to any that I may have hurt, and primarily to God, who is my judge, and who confers or denies eternal life. So that being said, and I mean it sincerely, uh, if I've been the problem to individuals, I don't want to be the problem to you. 
Uh, I want your problems to be your problems, and you go to God and get rid of yours, and I'll go to God and get rid of mine. That's the way the whole Bible is set up. Now, the reason I'm giving this particular sermon on this particular topic today is basically rooted in Ezekiel 33. There it starts off by saying, if the people make a man their watchman, and he sees a sword coming, and he doesn't warn the people, if they get killed, the blood is on his head. If he does warn them, then the blood is on their head. He goes on down and tells Ezekiel that he has made him a watchman, and then repeats that same thing to Ezekiel. So, I see trouble coming to Anatoth, and we'll get into that uh, more toward the end. I mean far more trouble than we are already experiencing, okay? I see a sword coming on Anatoth, and God requires me to warn people and let them know that that sword is coming and give them a chance to do what is necessary to keep that sword from coming. So that is essentially what we're here for today. Now, I'm going to go to a scripture that some will not like, but before I do it, I'll go to two Proverbs. One is in Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens to counsel is wise. Now, we are all capable of being foolish. We are all capable of deceiving ourselves and thinking, that's not me. Now, I could deceive myself and say I'm not a problem to Anatoth or to the people here. Well, I obviously have been a problem to some people. So I need to do what I can to resolve those issues between me and God and between me and them if possible. But we can all look at ourselves and we think we're right. We don't think we're wrong. And every one of us have done it. Now, let's go to Proverbs 21 and verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the eternal ponders the heart. Now, if we think a certain way, we think we think that way because we're right about that particular issue, right? If you thought you were wrong about what you think on something, then you would probably yourself change it and correct your thinking. But it's when we're wrong and think we're right that we can have a problem. Now, anytime you bring up the name of Korah, anybody you bring it up around, and I've noticed this for decades, actually, they, you think I'm Korah. That's the immediate defensive reaction. Well, let's consider some things about how God handles certain situations. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm not any, here to call anybody Korah. But I want to go, first of all, to number 16, and see a situation and the circumstances of it, and then what God did about it. And we'll see more than one of these. This is in Numbers chapter 16. Now, let's, let's examine this not from condemning anyone or accusations against anybody. Let's examine this for the information that is here and for what it could be worth to us. 
Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the sons of Levi, and so on, uh, along with uh, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. So these four individuals were involved. Korah, Dathan, Eliab, and On. It wasn't just Korah. There were four men involved. And they rose up before Moses. Moses, excuse me, today my tongue's not working too well, not having eaten. I, I'm having trouble spitting things out a little bit. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So with these four men, they had assembled 250 others who were in positions of authority, men of renown, men of good reputation, uh, not what you would normally term rebels or dissidents or, or negativists. Uh, these were men of renown. These were men of good reputation within Israel, okay? So we're not dealing here right off the bat with a rabble-rousing mob. Uh, Exodus 23 says that, verse 2 I believe it is, says that a mob shall do nothing, or words to that effect. In other words, when a bunch of people get together and think they're right about something and try to do something about such and such, that is never approved by God. It is not how He works. And Exodus 23, 2, I believe it is, states that emphatically. So here you have four men who have gathered 250 leaders of Israel. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Now, they thought they were right, okay? They thought they had a just cause. Otherwise, that many people would not have gathered up and said, Moses, you're a problem here. So that's what they did. Moses, you're a problem. Now, here is the problem that they said Moses had. And not just Moses, but against Aaron as well, because he was the high priest. Moses and Aaron, and said to them, you take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. He's trying to say, they're saying, you should not be leaders over us. You should not be Moses, and you should not be Aaron. All the people are holy. And we need to be the ones who determine for ourselves what should be done. It's an old version, and I've heard the words, and I've seen them in print right here on this property. We the people... We are just as holy as anybody else, and certainly as holy and probably more holy than you are, leader, whoever you are. This is not a new concept, in other words. I have also heard it said here recently, and to me, actually, uh, we're all apostles. All apostle means is one cent. Well... Uh, that is the Greek meaning, but in the context, it has more meaning. It is one sent to do a specific job, one sent by God to fulfill a purpose. It was also, in the New Testament, the highest rank in a hierarchical government that God established in 1 Corinthians 12, saying first apostles, second prophets, and on down through evangelists, and so on. So, yes, sent. But I will tell you this, I was sent here by God, given certain information, to do a certain job. No one else was sent here. Others responded and came here after they heard the message that God had sent. 
So let's get that straight. But these people had that same attitude. You take too much on you. Well, Moses hadn't taken anything on him, had he? Didn't God appear to him at the burning bush and tell him he had a mission for him? Didn't God put Moses in charge? Moses didn't take it upon himself. Moses did what God had told him to do. These people came along long, long, long after. They'd already been in trouble with God, remember? They had rebelled against Moses right after they got across the Red Sea. And that was a rebellion against God, not just Moses. And what did God say? He said, you're all going to die in the desert. Every last one of you. So that rebellion and that murmuring that occurred right on the other side of the Red Sea, God conferred death on every one of those people. They would not enter the kingdom, I mean the uh, promised land. Well, that's how God dealt with that first rebellion of Israel. That was 600,000 men, women, men plus women and children. But people tend to look at things that way. If God sets something up, they say, hey, I'm just as good as you are. And you know what? They're right. There's not anybody here that I am better than. I don't feel that way. I'm not better than anybody here. I fight my human nature and those two commandments every day of my life, trying to love God more than myself and my neighbors as much as myself. And that rebellion and that carnality in my mind is a constant, by the minute, by the second battle, just like it is with you if you're facing it. The only reason I'm here is because God told me to prepare a place, a piece of land, for His people to come to. Not the prep crew, but for the remnant, because the context was of the whole remnant, not just a few people. I have owned bigger pieces of land than this in my life, and in, as far as I'm concerned, a lot prettier places. I had 134 acres up in Montana, right up in the mountains, with pine trees all over it, deer and elk and bear crossing it day in and day out. And to me, that's paradise. That's bigger than this, and I don't see any deer and elk and bears running across it. So would I rather be there than here? You bet I had. I've owned other pieces of land. I could care less about this piece of land and owning it for my purposes. God told me to do this, or I would still be in Alaska hunting and fishing, believe me, and making my own living, and I was doing better at it than I have here. Thank you very much. Maybe that was a little sarcastic, but it was also true. Anyway, moving on here in verse 3. Every one of them, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So they said, God is guiding us too. But that is the exact attitude that I see in people here who have turned from me. And you know, God said it would be this way. What did he tell Ezekiel at the end of chapter 33? He says, they'll say they like what you teach, they like the way you speak, uh, but they're still behind the wall and the door, or however he put it, talking about you. That's exactly what we have right here today. We agree with the doctrine. Well, they don't always. Uh, there are doctrines that they don't agree with, and some have already departed from. And one of them is one we're talking about right here. 
He says, Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the eternal. (coughs) You know those people thought he had. They thought he had lifted himself up above the people. But he hadn't. God had put him in the position he was in. So those people thought they were right, okay? They really thought they were right. They wouldn't have come with 250 of the renowned men of Israel if they didn't think they were right. Now, let's see what God says and if they were right or not. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He cared about them. And when he heard that, he knew that God would not like that because he knew the history. And when he fell on his face, he was in in essence saying, you people are in deep trouble with God. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, even tomorrow the Eternal will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. Even him whom he has chosen will he cause to come near to him. This do, take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Eternal tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Eternal does choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. So Moses turned it around on them. Was Moses right in doing that? Well, let's read the rest of the story. Moses said to Korah, Hear, I pray you, you sons of Levi. Does it seem to you a small thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the eternal? Are you the ones that are supposed to be in charge? Really? I know that there are those who say, I shouldn't be in charge, and they say that nobody should be in charge, but it all boils down to nobody should be in charge but them. Exact same thing right here. Exact same thing. And you're going to stand before the congregation to minister to them? I've had people tell me and say about me, he shouldn't be preaching. He shouldn't speak anymore. He needs to be off the land. Are they then supposed to stand and speak? And he brought you near to him, and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you, and seek you the priesthood also. Do you think you ought to be preachers? Are you all apostles? <laughs> you know? That question was even asked in First Corinthians 12. Are all apostles or all prophets? Obviously, no, not in the context. But people will say that. Just because they're taking a Greek... Uh, definition out of context of how God was using it. Anyway, a separation was going to be made between whom God had chosen to be leaders and those he had not. And that will happen at Anatoth as well, and I'll show you that later. Uh, Let's see. For which cause, verse 11, both you and all your company are gathered together against the eternal... And what is uh, Aaron that you murmur against him? So this rebellion, God says, was really against him. That's what Moses is saying here. And Moses sent to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. We're not going to come to this meeting. <laughs> we're not going to see. We already know. We're right. We're in charge here. You shouldn't be. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except you make yourself a prince over us? You're only doing this for yourself. This is all about you, Moses. And I have people saying that about me constantly here. 
It's all about you. It's all about Henson. They've even got an attorney saying that now. It's all about you. It's all you care about. No, if I cared about me, I'd still be in Alaska. I'll tell you that. More of you have not brought us to a land uh, that flows with milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. So it was about land, too. Uh, Will you put out the eyes of those men? We will not come up. Now, they're, they're dealing with ancient history here, aren't they? You didn't bring us out here to give us land and inheritance. You came out here to destroy us. Well, that was, that was what God had conferred on them when they rebelled this side of the Red Sea. He had said, you're going to die. You're not going into the land of milk and honey. That was still chafing against them. They still didn't like that. They wanted to get rid of Moses and probably go into the promised land and take it over and get the land themselves. You think that was their motive? Sounds like it. Moses was very angry and said to the Eternal, Respect not you their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. I'm declared of being a con man and a, someone here who's trying to take money from people. I don't, there's only one place I know of you can live cheaper on this earth with an acre of land than right here in the United States anyway, and that's probably under a freeway bridge. And Moses said to Korah, Be you and all your company before the Eternal... You and they and Aaron tomorrow. He says, I don't care what your attitude is. Uh, you show up before God. And take every man his censer and put incense in them and come before God. So they did that. Verse 19, And Korah gathered all the congregation against them to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So this wasn't just those four men and 250 renowned men. Now they had assembled all Israel. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So they wanted a major confrontation here. This is a big deal. And the Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. He told Moses and Aaron, Don't get near these rebels. Stay away from them. They have something coming, and you don't want to be part of it. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? Korah was the absolute leader of this. He had three close compatriots with him. Then they had recruited 250 more. Then they had brought all Israel. And Moses was concerned. (laughs) You know, you're going to destroy all the people because of this one rebel? That was a distinct possibility. They were standing near that rebel. Okay? He even told Moses and Aaron, get away from him or you're going to go down too. God spoke to Moses saying, verse 24, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Get away from their houses. Get away from them if you expect to survive what is about to come. Should we be anywhere near someone who is in a rebellious attitude? This was God's warning now in this situation. Moses rose up and went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. 
And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. This is a dire warning from God to stay away from anyone in a negative, rebellious, uh, hateful, bitter attitude of animosity. Carnality, in other words. If you're around it, you'll be consumed by it. It will take you down. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives, and their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Eternal has sent me to do all these works, not them, but him. For I have not done them of my own mind. I didn't do this for myself, Moses said. God directed me to. If these men die, the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Eternal has not sent me. If they live out their lives and die normally, he said, then God didn't send me here. But if the Eternal make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertains to them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Eternal." And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained to Korah and all their goods. Wasn't there women and children, as it says in another chapter, but everything about them. Now there is also a sentence upon the rebels of Anatoth, which we'll get to. And God is going to show... These men, up to the point the earth opened, still thought they were right. They really, sincerely, thought they were right, okay? And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And there came out a fire from the Eternal and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. So the 250 leaders that had aligned themselves were also consumed by fire. So you've had the earth opening, now you've had fire, so that's 254 men dead, and then God spoke to uh, Moses again, and talks again about the censers and, the, and so on, uh, against their souls. Uh, I, I don't want to read all of this, but go on down. They made a memorial about these dead people, that, that the memorial would remind, don't rebel against God and Moses and Aaron, okay? Verse 41, But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. This sounds like when they first came across the Red Sea. They murmur, and then you give them something, they'd murmur some more. These saw the earth open, they saw fire, they saw men die, animals die, And the very next morning they were murmuring against Moses and Aaron, saying, You've killed the people of the Lord. So he shouldn't have made himself the leader. And now he was accused of murdering these people. Uh, Did Moses open the earth? Did did Moses send the fire? (laughs) No. Moses didn't kill anybody. It came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle 
And the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Eternal appeared. <coughs> and Moses and Aaron came there. Verse 45, The Eternal spoke to Moses. Here, here again, says, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. Now God was saying, I'm going to consume the entire congregation of Israel because of this rebellion that started with Korah, spread to four, to two fifty, and to all the congregation. And even when God had pronounced judgment, the congregation still thought they were right, and we the people are against Moses and Aaron. This is scripture. This isn't first Daryl three six. And he told Moses and Aaron, get away, I'm going to consume them. And Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire on the altar and put incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there's wrath gone out from the eternal, the plague is begun. So Moses was trying to stop the plague on these people. By giving this sermon today, I'm trying to stop some very dire things that are going to come on some people if they continue in the way that they're going. Okay, And any who aid, abet, empathize with, support, or help in any way, or come near them. And I'm not saying that either. God is. We'll see that in a little bit. The plague has begun. And they stood there then between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. So the people went into general rebellion and then 14,700 more died before Aaron was able to get uh, an atonement made for them. And God intended to kill them all. Now how does he deal with rebellion? Uh... I'll, I'll refer us here to 1 Samuel 15, 23, uh, where God had told Saul to kill all the Amalekites, and including the animals and so on. And Saul partly obeyed. He did kill the people, but he thought, man, why waste all these animals? And he saved them. And then Samuel heard the bleeding of sheep and said, uh, you didn't do what God told you to do. And right then... Uh, God said, Saul, you're no longer going to be king. So it wasn't a full rebellion. And, you know, a lot of people might have thought Saul was justified, you know. Yeah, I can see killing the men, maybe the women and children, but you're going to kill the animals? We can use them. That's stupid. No, that's what God had said. And when Paul partially rebelled, he was removed. Now, I do want to turn quickly to that because there's, there's a, a statement there that I think we need to consider. 1 Samuel 15. I'm just giving you a synopsis. But here he says in verse 23 in the middle of this, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. If we have a stubborn attitude, that's idolatry. Uh, rebellion is the same as witchcraft. Now, you're a witch. If you, re if you have an attitude of rebellion, it is witchcraft. Uh, let's go to Second Chronicles 33.6 and see what 
that means. Second Chronicles 33 and verse 6. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he also observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He worked much evil in the sight of the Eternal to provoke him to anger. Witchcraft has to do with demonism, with false worship. So God says if you're in rebellion, it is the same as dealing with demons and Satan and that Satan is your God. Because rebellion is not a fruit of the Spirit of God. Rebellion is of Satan. The first one to rebel against the kingdom of God, and he took a thirty-three or a third of the angels with him. Just as Korah took four men and then two fifty, and then had the whole congregation there lined up to rebel against God and die. And nobody mentioned God. It was all about Moses and Aaron that they were rebelling, they thought. Well, God didn't look at it that way. Uh, what about Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron? Now, these were some that God had appointed as leaders. Uh, Miriam and Aaron were the brother and the sister of Moses. He dealt with them a little differently than he did Korah, but he still dealt with it. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman which he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, the Scripture states that he had actually done it. So this was something that Moses apparently, according to the laws and intermarriage and so on that were extant at the time, he was not... People have argued, well, she was a, an Israelite woman that lived in Ethiopia. It doesn't matter. In the eyes of Miriam and Aaron, who were pretty familiar with Moses and pretty familiar, familiar with the law and were very familiar with Israel, in their opinion, he should not have married this woman. Shouldn't have proposed to her, shouldn't have married her. And they didn't like it. Now, I take it here that Moses had probably actually done something wrong. We don't need to defend Moses in that sense. He probably had done something illegal, contrary to God. But now, how did God look at it is what's important for us to get out of this. Miriam and Aaron may have been absolutely right. And some people here may be absolutely right about some things they think I think or have done or whatever. They just might be. All right, then, where do you go from there? Well, here's where, here's where Aaron and Miriam went. They said, Has the Eternal indeed spoken only by Moses? The same attitude that Korah had. We're your brother and your sister. We're just as important as you are. Does, are you the only one God speaks to? Has he not spoken also by us? And the Eternal heard it. Now, whatever we're going to see, whatever Moses had done, that was between Moses and God. And Miriam and Aaron should not have gotten involved in it, even if it was true. It was not their judgment. But they thought that God spoke through them, just as they had through Moses. Miriam had written a song when they came over from the Red Sea, sang it to God. She was a essentially righteous person. So was Aaron. But who was wrong here? 
Moses may have sinned, but how did they react to it? It says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Eternal spoke suddenly to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come, you three, to the tabernacle of the congregation. I came out. The Eternal came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Eternal, will make himself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. So he said, Normally, when I make somebody a prophet, I come to them in dreams and visions, okay? But this is a special circumstance, he said. My servant Moses is not so who is faithful in all my house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the eternal shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses is my friend. I talk to him face to face, and here you're accusing him of sin. If Moses had committed that sin, it was up to God to deal with Moses. That's the point. And God makes that very clear here. And the angle of the eternal was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and beheld she was leprous, and Aaron said to Moses, I beseech you, lay not the sin upon us. Moses wasn't laying the sin on him. God had. God created the leprosy. Not Moses. But they blamed Moses. And Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech you, don't lay this on us. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. Moses cried to the Eternal and said, I beseech you to heal her. And then God said, if she had just spit in the face of her father, she'd have to be outside the camp seven days. So she's going to stay out of the camp at least seven days uh, for a major offense. And then he showed mercy and let her come back in healed. So God dealt with Miriam and Aaron who were uh, in a high position and were the brother and the sister of Moses in a different way than he had Korah and those other rebels. Well, God sometimes does different things with different people, and it depends on how uh, evil the circumstance, depends on the people who are involved and what, what their rank and position is. But the renowned men of Israel went down with Korah, too. So uh, God decides what he will decide. And he saw that this little rebellion was actually limited to two people. The rest of the congregation didn't come against Moses, just those two. But those other two had solicited the participation, or that other one, Korah, and then those four men, had solicited the participation of others, and it had spread. Therefore, God made a much greater punishment and covered a lot more people to stop a rebellion that was spreading. God considers it very evil to cause anything to spread and cause dissension, trouble, division within the body. That is a much more serious crime than what Aaron and Miriam committed. Yes, it was rebellion, but it was limited. Uh, the other was unlimited, and God gave unlimited uh, uh, evil. And it was only stopped because of the intercession that Aaron made for the people. 
Now let's go to one more of these, and that's in Acts 4. This one speaks volumes about what is going on in Anatith right now, just as these others have. Again, I'm not accusing anybody in particular. Just let the chips fall where they will and look at the circumstances and look at God's reactions and then consider your approach and how you go about things. Now, here in Acts 4, this was a very dramatic time uh, right after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there was a dearth, there was a drought, there was a very serious financial situation which we have coming in this country very, very shortly now, just as it was then when people will not have enough to eat. And the apostles acted in a way to make sure that everyone was taken care of and protected and, and ate and, and uh, could, could live. Uh, we have uh, war coming on America. First, a civil war and uh, martial law and so on, as Jeremiah says in chapter 50 through 51. That is almost upon us. And then we have a financial collapse that Zephaniah 1 tells us about, along with other scriptures. And then we have a military takeover, and God's faithful remnant, one-tenth of those that were called under Herbert Armstrong, essentially, are going to come to the area of Zion to be protected and taken care of, and certain circumstances will have to occur in order for those people to be taken care of. If they do not submit to what God wants done, uh, something will happen. We'll get to that in a moment. But here we had a similar circumstance that occurred back then. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is saying what had happened in chapter 2. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any man. That's, so they were, they were in agreement. And when we first came out here, having understood what God had revealed, that we needed to get out of the cities and come dwell in the wilderness and in a field, uh, and we found a field, we were essentially in agreement at that time. And we'll see that uh, when it talks about Anatoth in a bit. So these people were as well. And neither said any of them that anything of the things which he possessed was his own. Nobody was possessive. Nobody said, this is mine. This is what I want. They weren't covetous. They weren't greedy. They were in a good attitude. But they had all things common. So what, it goes on to explain, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the eternal, and, and great grace was upon them all. So God had favored them, and they were being blessed. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold. So the, the apostles had said, we have a situation here that God has guided us to believe should be handled by everybody selling everything they have and throwing it in a common pot so that everybody can be taken care of and everybody eat. Now, it wasn't uh, communism forevermore. It was simply how to deal with a certain circumstance that they were facing. These people were not greedy. They were not covetous of their lands and their homes. Uh, 
And they were all willing to sell them and turn the money in to the apostles. Now what if someone didn't? So they laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. And he gives a good example. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Contrast that with the way we developed this property, or I did, really. God told me in 1994, very clearly, that I was to prepare a place near where I was, which was Beaver Dam, Arizona, and it wasn't within a mile or two of that. The perception was in the geographical neighborhood. 1994. You had not heard of me then. Maybe you'd seen my picture in the Envoy or something from the 60s. Who knows? But he also revealed to me the area in 1996, in January and April. So I began working on doing that. He gave me, with that, an understanding of prophecy and how it reflects the church first and then the nations of Israel. He deals with spiritual Israel first, the church, then physical Israel. That all those prophecies had to do with the church. Some of you believe that. So in the Feast of Tabernacle, or Feast of Trumpets in 2000 and 2000 and 2000, <laughs> 2000 itself, uh, we had our first telephone hookup. There were three members at headquarters, my wife and I and Andy Benedetto, and some of you were on the phone. Most people who are on this property today were not there then, nor were they there when this property was bought. But... Uh, it became clear that we needed to move out here, and we began moving out here and at the feast in 2001. I brought a load to the feast that year uh, because I knew that we needed to be in this area. We still didn't know the land. But God had said that that land was to be for the use of God's people when he gathered them, the remnant. So I generated a lease which was not a lease purchase option of any kind, but it was designed on purpose to keep this land from being sold to any outsiders, that it would be preserved for only God's people, because that was the original instruction, prepare it for my people, not for polygamists or anybody else. Okay? That was my mindset. I had to go do that. God had told me to. And it was to be for his people, not any outsiders. And it was inspired, I think, to put in there that people had to be members of a congregation of God in order to participate. Uh, you were not given the land. You were given permission to live on the land if you would follow that lease. And we were in accord. And most people signed the lease, and most people paid on that lease for years and years. Some were not there. There are only six of the eight original who were adults at the time still here on the property. Eight of those and six are uh, with this ACOG to this day. But most came after that initial uh, 
lease was signed and people began to move on the land. So they weren't even here when it actually all developed, most of them. That's the majority of the ones that are here today. Now contrast an attitude that came along when people began to get frustrated with me for various reasons. And you know what? I don't blame you. I get frustrated with myself every day that I live. And I'm sure God gets frustrated with me every day that I live. So if people get frustrated with me every day that I live, I'm not surprised. I have to repent every day. I have to ask God's forgiveness every day. Uh, so, And I'm not being a bit facetious or insincere or sarcastic. That is just a fact. Now, God... Uh, told me to do certain things. Now, Zechariah 3 is sometimes used. I think I'll turn to that for a moment. Uh, I don't want to get too long here, but uh, here you had an individual who has was had been or was filthy with sin, and that would include you, me, and everybody. But this is a particular individual. So he was clothed, and Satan was standing at his right hand to resist him, we see up in verse 1. So Satan had his clutches there ready to grab and make him his own. Now, he was, verse 3, he was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those that stood before him. That could be people, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with change of raiment. So with this individual, whoever he may turn out to be, God forgave the sin, and God gave clean, righteous clothing, not people. Now, taking the filthy garments from him, as God forgives and gives new ones, might mean that whatever was bad that was there needed to be taken away. All right, ask the question, where was it? It was in the minds of those who had observed the man. They observed and said, he has filthy garments. They made accusations against him. Okay? Now, God is the one who forgives and gives the new garments, but the people, apparently here, have to do away with those garments of filth. What are those garments of filth? Sin. Where were they? In God's mind? No, he forgave. Were they in minds of uh, the people of New York? No, they didn't know anything about it. They were in the minds of the people who had observed the individual, and they had to get rid of them. It was their responsibility to remove accusation for, uh, of sin and to cleanse their minds and forgive, even as God forgave. That's what we have to do. So let's not misinterpret here that the people were supposed to straighten Joshua out, whoever he is. The whole Bible is against that. The whole Bible, Ezekiel 33 and other places, is each person has to straighten himself out. He's not answerable to his father or his, his son. He has to straighten himself out. So that's between every man and God. We are not to judge one another. God is our judge. 
God is your judge, my judge, Joshua's judge. He's everybody's judge. So he says, when I make a judgment, you get rid of whatever you're carrying your mind about that person. Isn't that right? God forgives, we forgive. So be careful how you interpret what you read. Now, he did say in Mark 9, I think I'll turn to that one right quick, that whoever God sends out into the wilderness with a message in the end time, uh, let's see, Mark, let me find this as I go, that he would do that, and whoever that is, wherever he is, uh, he would be there to restore all things, and there are a lot of things that were not restored. We didn't even know where the promised land was in 1990. We didn't know where Zion was or Jerusalem. There were a lot of doctrines. We didn't know how to keep the Passover. Uh, we didn't know how to keep the calendar. There were a lot of things we didn't know that had to be fixed. Well, God has revealed a lot of those things over the years. So, whoever this is talking about, it says, uh, let's, let's read it in verse 12. And he answered and told them, Elijah first comes to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set as nothing, or held in utter contempt, the New King James says. So he says, whoever comes at the end that is there to restore is going to be treated like Christ was and like John the Baptist originally was, where they could do with them as they wanted and be uh, suffer many things and be set as nothing. But I say to you, the Elijah is indeed come, speaking of John the Baptist, and they have done to him whatever they wanted, as it is written of him. So God says it's happened before and it's going to happen again. So he says, whoever I send out into the wilderness to preach the truth is going to be held in utter contempt and suffer many things. So it comes with the territory. If this is the place, <laughs> then it comes with the territory. So God prophesied these things through uh, Jeremiah and through Mark 2,500 and 2,000 years ago, respectively. So the situation we're facing today, God knew would happen. And He knew whoever He called would suffer these things, and He knew whoever He called would also have been or be filthy with sin. That's understood. It's a given. Now, are we going to question God's calling of whoever He calls who might fit that category? And God even tells us there He's going to take care of it, whoever it is. And that we're to get rid of the filth in our own minds about it and the sins that we accuse. Because God forgave them, why should we retain them? God is not going to have in His kingdom people who retain other people's sins and live in angerness, bitter, fear, insecurity, and hate. It just isn't going to be in the kingdom of God. If it is, I don't want to be there. Now, let's, let's read one in Ezekiel 20. I try not to speak long on a day that we have a fast, but uh, this may go over time a little, or I'll use all my time. Ezekiel 20. And here, let's begin uh, verse 34. Now, this is an end-time prophecy, and it's talking about the time that we're living in right now. I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you were scattered. He says he'll gather 
there in Haggai, a remnant. says it in Isaiah 4 that it's the remnant is 10%. With a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm, and with a fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. Said Christ says he'll come, deal, he'll come dwell with us there in Zechariah 2 when he causes this remnant to gather. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, says the eternal God. So all is not going to be well. God is going to plead. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, go under his judgment. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. He's going to make an everlasting covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me and bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn and they shall not enter into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the eternal. So he says there is going to be a rebellion, that there will be rebels, even among those whom God has called out as his remnant. And he will purge those rebels out and they will be sent away. Now, that's a general statement about this end time we're in and the remnant that is about to gather. It gets more specific with Anatoth. Let's go to Jeremiah 32, and I'll start trying to wrap this up, but it's going to take a little while to get through it. And here in this context, uh, to summarize, God had told Jeremiah to go buy a field, and he dwelt in Anatoth, and God told him, when it was all said and done, that that field represented a type that God would again, in that land, uh, have people buy land and so on, and live and have their vines and fig trees and so on. Now, it was a long-time prophecy. He told him to put it in a vessel uh, to preserve it for many, many days. And I submit that it wasn't just till the 70 years captivity they were about to go in was finished because they did come back. Uh, and whatever, what all is prophesied here in Jeremiah 32 did not happen. That's the part I want to get to at the moment. Here he's talking about Anatoth still and about the end time gathering. <coughs> Verse 37, I'll gather them out of all countries where I've driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath and will bring them again to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me, and rejoice over them to do good. So this is an eternal prophecy in, in, that God is talking about here in Jeremiah. The field that Jeremiah bought pointed to an ultimate everlasting covenant. Verse 43, And fields shall be bought in this land whereof you say it is desolate without man or beast. It is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money and so on. Now, this captivity occurred. They went in and they came back in 70 years, right? And if you go to Ezra, I'll not turn for sake of time, but it says there, it gave, a, it gave uh, the towns that had been around Jerusalem that had gone into captivity and those who returned to build a temple. And it includes 128 men of Anatoth. 
Now, Jeremiah 11 says that there will be no remnant left of the rebels of Anatoth. Well, there was in that particular fulfillment. They came back to help build the temple. They had rebelled and they had gone into captivity and came back to build the temple. So the final fulfillment of this prophecy cannot yet have happened. He did not make an everlasting covenant with them. He didn't even offer them the new covenant. Just the old. Okay? And Israel did rebel against God after this and were sent into captivity. And he said that Jerusalem and Israel and the promised land would remain desolate for many generations as we've read. Here it says a land that you say it's desolate without man or beast. And that's the way the true Jerusalem is today. So this is an end time prophecy about a desolate place of Jerusalem. And it says that men will again build fields there. So, we just read in Ezekiel how there is going to be, there are going to be rebels in the remnant and with the remnant that comes and that God will purge them out. They'll be gotten rid of. Now let's go to Jeremiah 11. been building toward this. And let's see how it all ends for Anatoth in specific. Now, in Jeremiah 11, he had been talking about, I think, Israel and the church as a whole, uh, and how he was not happy with them. Verse 14, he says, Therefore pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or pray for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. So, God says this end time trouble is going to come and it won't even do a bit of good to pray about it. It's going to happen. 90%, more than 90% of the population of the earth will die. A little over 90% of the church will go into spiritual famine, captivity, and the sword and pretty much be destroyed except that third that will go into the tribulation and some will repent there. So he says, don't pray about it. Now he draws it down to a very specific thing having to do with Jeremiah and Anatoth. Now remember, this is an end-time prophecy. Anatoth, the whole Anatoth prophecy was an end-time prophecy of an everlasting covenant where a, re, where a desolate land is rebuilt. So this, too, is an end-time thing where God says, don't even pray for this nation, don't pray for the church. It won't do a bit of good. So in that context, God gives this specific prophecy that we're about to read. Verse 15 of Jeremiah 11. What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing she has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? So he's talking about his church, and we'll see that he's talking about a specific part of his church here in a moment and that there had been evil committed there. The holy flesh passed from you. When you do evil, then you rejoice. So something that is occurring in Anatoth is something that people think they're right about. They think they are doing correctly. Need I remind of Miriam and Aaron and Korah and Ananias and Sapphira? I never did read that, did I? I didn't get down to the part where it said Ananias and Sapphira rebelled against the apostles and kept back part of the portion of the land that they sold. And they were struck dead on the spot. 
God backed up what the apostles were doing. Those people were willing to sell their land, where here we have people who are getting covetous for and want to own land. When God told me it was to be for his remnant and not to let anybody else do anything with it, and we did a lease to prevent that from happening, and now people, after having paid on the lease and accepting it for years, are now saying it's a purchase agreement. And we want our land. Contrast that with the people, except Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 4, who are willing to give up their land for the good of all. Now, is that lewdness in the land? Is that holiness? Is covetousness holy? Read the Colossians 3.5. Covetousness is idolatry. So when people covet, they are committing idolatry against God. That's Satan worship and self-worship. That's lewdness. And they're rejoicing in it, thinking we deserve this. We're right. Daryl's wrong. Daryl set himself up here. It's all about him. He just wants his land. Oh, baloney. I plan on leaving this land as soon as possible. I really do. It is my desire to go and help build the temple at Jerusalem. And as soon as God gives the go-ahead, I'm gone. I don't want this land. I already told you, I've had bigger pieces of land than this in a prettier place. And I left them for this purpose. And this purpose only. Now let's... So people are rejoicing, thinking they're right. The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. Now when this started here, God had established it as an olive tree. We'll see that uh, he planted it down here in a moment. Now, there are only four places a man is referred to as an olive tree in the Bible. One is Revelation 11, the other, and another is Zechariah 4.14, both speaking of the two witnesses, the two olive trees. In uh, one, in Psalms, David calls himself a, uh, a green olive tree. And David in Ezekiel 34 is spoken of as one of the leaders of the end-time church. So the only men in the Bible are either types of or are the two men of the end-time who are the olive trees. And one of those will be at Anatoth at some point. In fact, both of them will be. So God established Anatoth and planted it as an olive tree, not a fig tree, not an oak tree, not a pine tree, an olive tree. Okay? He called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. So what was happening when people were here in accord and were agreeing and were doing what we came here to do, God said that those branches were producing goodly fruit. That this was a place He was pleased with, okay? Okay? God has been pleased with us here in the past. I submit that He's not at the moment. We'll see that. So He called us a green olive tree fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, He has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. So God is behind what is happening here for a reason. 
lewdness, wrong doctrine, sin, have occurred here. There's been lying. There's been fraud by people. There's been fornication. There's been adultery. There's been false government introduced. There's been rebellion incited. There's been covetousness over land. I've seen all these things happen. I'm accused of all of them, but I've seen them happen with other people. Be that as it may. The branches are broken. What did Christ say of himself? He said, He was the vine, we are the branches. And if the branches are cut off from him, they wither and die. Same is true of a tree. If the branches come off the tree, the branches die. All right? The people are the branches. The leadership is the trunk, is the tree. For the Lord of hosts that planted you, God is the one who planted this place. He's the one, he could have done it with anybody, but in this particular place, he chose me, a filthy, weak, base man, for his purposes to do this. He planted this tree. Has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves. The branches have committed a rebellion which ultimately will turn out to be against themselves. It isn't about me. It isn't what I've done. It isn't what I, even though everything I've done hasn't been good. I admit that. But you better pay attention to those things we read earlier and pay attention right here. And you better pay very good attention because this is about us. I have no doubt of that. You can poo-poo it. You can deride it. But let's finish it. So, they've done this against themselves. They're only hurting themselves. When you go against God and His government and what He has planted and what He has done, and then you rejoice in it thinking, we're going to get you, we're going to put you in jail, and we're going to get rid of you, and you're not going to preach anymore, and on and on and on. We're going to get rid of what we consider a false apostle, uh, because they, some of them think they're Ephesians 2, and they're the Ephesus church. Well... Um, that doesn't apply because we're not Ephesus. I'm sorry. Now, it goes on. Uh, they've done this against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Now, people would say, well, we haven't in offered incense to Baal. Is rebellion as witchcraft? Yes, it is. Is rebellion the same thing as worshiping Satan and being a witch? Yes, it is. That is offering incense to Baal. When you go against God's hierarchical government and those he placed in charge, and he did place me in charge of this, that is incense offered to Baal. It's Satanism. <coughs> and God deals with it. Verse 18, And the Eternal has given me knowledge of it. This is Jeremiah speaking of himself. And I know it. Then you showed me their doings. I began to suspect some of this stuff quite some time back, actually several years, because some were working very, very subtly to try to get the land and to get people on their side to do it, and so on. So I knew it. But then God showed me their doings. But I was like a lamb, an ox that is brought to the slaughter. I've had somebody tell me I was going to feel the thunder 
that uh, they were going to get the 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 county, the state, and the federal government on me, and I was going to jail. But they loved me and didn't want to see me go to jail, but they're going to put me there anyway. I had somebody tell me that a few weeks ago. Well, most everything they have, well, everything they have actually, uh, is bogus. Those things didn't happen. So, whatever. I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me. I woke up one day to the fact that some of them thought they were Ephesus, and they had to get rid of a false apostle, and they decided I was one. I guess at least they thought I was an apostle. Wow, wow. Uh, But a bad one at that. But that isn't what God called me to do. He called me here to do this, Uh, not be an apostle in the Ephesus church. Uh, they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Daryl has to go. And let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be no more remembered. Now, spiritually and even physically, some have said or thought this. You think they haven't thought actual murder thoughts? Sure they have. Sure they have. May not have expressed them, but they've thought them. When you have an attitude of hatred and bitterness and anger, as some around here do, you do think of those things, so I can say they have thought those thoughts. But, O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for unto you have I revealed my cause. So Jeremiah went, they were saying all those things about him, and they actually put him in jail. They said all those things about him. Didn't want him preaching. Uh, Jeremiah took his case to God. Now, God made a judgment. God made a choice. Just as he did between Moses and Korah, just as he did between uh, Miriam and Aaron and Moses, just as he did between the apostles and their other members against Ananias and Sapphira, just as he always has done, he is pronouncing a judgment here, and he's saying which way he's going to go. Is it going to be with the tree or with the branches? Which is it going to be? Does Zechariah 3 show that the tree may be forgiven by God and given clean clothes or not? Here's God's judgment, verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of the men of Anatoth that seek your life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Eternal that you die not by our hand. People here have told me we don't want you preaching. In fact, they don't even come listen to me preach anymore. It's the exact same situation Jeremiah was facing. Therefore, here's God's judgment. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, he's not just saying, this is me, the Lord, speaking. He's saying the Lord of hosts. He's invoking his great name, Lord of all hosts. That's one of his highest titles. So this is a huge judgment he's making, okay? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword... Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. We're about to go into tribulation, uh, martial law, and revolution in this country, followed by the Great Tribulation. 
So I think he's referring to that which is about to come upon our nation. Didn't he say he would purge them out and send them away in Ezekiel 20? Well, being purged and sent away from here is going to put you into this apocalypse that is now coming upon the world. That's where it's going to put you. So I think he's saying here, I'm going, to, I'm going to get them out, and they're going into the tribulation. And they and their sons and their daughters shall die, and there shall be no remnant of them. All their sons, all their daughters, all of them, wives and husbands, will be put in the tribulation and die there. And there shall be no, remember, no remnant of them, none, not one left. For I will bring evil upon the men of Anatoth, even the year of their visitation. Now that is what God has pronounced upon the rebellion in Anatoth. Now just as Moses was told by God, and Moses told the people, don't get near it. Remove yourself from them. Don't even get close. Don't be near their tent. Don't talk to them. Get away from them, lest you die with them. Now let's close this out with this statement. God told Ezekiel in chapter 33 to warn the people, and I see a sword specifically coming on the rebels of Anatoth. They may have confused and deceived themselves and think they're right, but God says you rejoice even when you do evil. Ezekiel 33 goes on to say that those who repent will be forgiven, and those who do not repent will not be forgiven. So even though God has made a very severe and strong judgment here, He is a God of mercy. He was going to destroy the whole congregation of Israel there over the Korah and Abiram and Dathan rebellion. But intercession was made. Now, I don't want to see anybody die and go into the tribulation. And these people around here who are currently in the attitudes they're in are rebelling against me for my sins and my alleged sins and whatever else are doing exactly what God said 2,000 years ago would happen in Mark 9.13, and exactly what God caused Jeremiah to write in 2,500 years ago. There is time to repent. There is time to quit being covetous and greedy and seeking to own when God did not intend that, but He intended this to be for His remnant people. And any who rebel against that are going to be purged and sent away from here by God. It's not my judgment. It's not my vengeance. I'm not going to... I haven't tried to run anybody off. That's my record here. Some well-deserved it, and I didn't try it. Haven't tried it on anyone. But God has said He's going to. Now, I don't know where it's going to go between now and then but I know how it's going to end. So my advice would be, and God's advice is, to get away from anyone who is in those attitudes, as Ananias and Sapphira were, covetous of their land 
and the money that it would bring. Get away from any rebellion you have and quit holding people's sins over them because it will do you in. Those who we... He says very clearly, and I've preached it many times, if you forgive men their sins, he will forgive you. But if you don't forgive them their sins, he will not forgive you yours. I'm asking you, brethren here and brethren who may hear this later, please forgive me for anything I have done against you. For any sin, any transgression, any indiscretion, in anything I've done over the years that has bothered you and built up, I'm asking your forgiveness. I'm not going to get into specifics of things I've done. We don't have a confessional booth. But all of them, whatever they are. And do it for not only my sake, but primarily for your sake. Because if you don't forgive others their sins, yours will not be forgiven. And if you don't get over the rebellion that you are agitating now, God will destroy you in what is coming. He has made a very concrete judgment on that right here in Jeremiah 11. So this isn't playtime. This is for real. And it's for real soon. So get away from any attitude of rebellion that you may have or that anyone else has. Because if you don't, you, your wife or husband, your children are all going to die and there will be not one left. That is the judgment of God on Anatoth. That's how it ends. It does say in Isaiah 10 that, it is going to, that the area is going to be overrun by the Assyrian. He names various villages that will be run overrun through Isaiah 10. And he gets down to verse 30 and he says, and includes among them, O poor Anatoth. Do you suppose that God is going to bring the gathering here and that He is then going to move it on into other villages, as He says in Zechariah 2, and up to Jerusalem? And those who have agitated to own this place are going to be left behind and overrun? Oh, poor Anatoth. God will deliver the faithful and those who are not and those who rebel are going to be purged and killed. That's God's word, not mine. Please heed and save yourselves.